0: Congregation, boys and girls, what a lonely Lord's Day it must have been for the Apostle John on that small little island of Patmos, an island just off of the coast of Asia Minor. By this time, he is probably 90 to 95 years old. A man who had so faithfully served the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who had labored so fruitfully among the churches in Asia Minor. And now because of the brutal persecution of Emperor Domitian, he has been banished. He has been banished to the island of Patmos. He writes about it in the chapter we read, I, John, who am also your brother... And companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was in the isle that is called Patmos. And then he gives the reason for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And the word testimony is the word in Greek that is related to the verb marturao, which mean, literally means to witness. But because so many of God's children were persecuted and even put to death because of their witness regarding the Lord Jesus Christ, that word became synonymous with those who had to pay the ultimate price for that testimony. And That's clearly what John is telling us here. That's the reason why he has been banished to the Isle of Patmos. You can imagine that this old servant of God must have felt so useless. That the thought may have crossed his mind, what am I doing here on this island? How can I be useful to the church of Christ? Of course, what he could do, and no doubt did, is engage in intercessory prayer for the churches that he had left behind in Asia Minor. And yet, this lonely Lord's Day would become for him the most unforgettable Lord's Day of his life. By the way, congregation, this is the place in Scripture where the first day of the week is specifically designated as the Lord's Day, the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, the day on which the New Testament church would commemorate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we read that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Something very remarkable happened to him. Not only was he moved by the Spirit, but he he entered into a very special stage of spiritual ecstasy. He experienced what so many of the prophets of the Old Testament had experienced when those special moments came where they were moved by the Spirit to record the Word of God. And that's ultimately what would happen here, is that the exalted Christ would dictate to this man what would prove to be the final book of the written record of God's Word. And so on this lonely Lord's Day, we read that He heard behind Him a great voice as a trumpet. And we know from the Old Testament that often a trumpet was used for special occasions, to call people to worship or to warn them. It often meant that a special word of God was to come to the people. And so here, he hears a voice as of a trumpet. And he hears those amazing words. I am Alpha and Omega, The first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book, specifically directed, write in the book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, unto Smyrna, unto Pergamos, unto Thyatira, unto Sardis, unto Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And I turned then he saw an amazing thing, an amazing vision. He saw seven golden candlesticks. Now, of course, we know that for a Jew, seeing a candlestick would remind him, of course, immediately of the candlestick that was in the tabernacle and that was in the temple. The candlestick which was symbolic of the people of God who would bear light as a result of the oil that would fuel that candlestick. But of course, in the tabernacle, in the temple, there was but one candlestick. But now he sees seven golden candlesticks. And then in the midst, so we have to think that they were kind of in a circular fashion. But in the midst of those seven candlesticks, he sees one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot and gird about the paps with a golden girdle. Again, for any Jew who was familiar with the Scriptures, this would undoubtedly would have reminded him of what we find recorded in Daniel 7 and Daniel 10, very, very similar. What he saw... What he saw was a a revelation of the exalted Lord Jesus Christ. And he sees them remarkably surrounded by those seven candlesticks, in the midst of those seven candlesticks. And the Lord Jesus himself tells us in verse 20 that those candlesticks were symbolic of the seven churches of Asia Minor. As you know, the number seven is the number of perfection. And what this obviously means is that those seven candlesticks were just not symbolic of the churches of Asia Minor, but those seven candlesticks were symbolic of the church of God throughout all ages. Because those seven churches in Asia Minor, to which Christ would dictate specific letters, Those churches are representative of the church of Jesus Christ until this very day. And how beautiful, how beautiful that John sees the exalted Christ in the midst of those seven churches. And again, the symbolism is rich because congregation, it is so clear and it's so evident That this is how Christ wants to be known. This is how Christ wants to be known today. We see this, of course, beautifully exemplified in the wilderness. When God established His residence in the midst of His people. The tabernacle, which was surrounded by the twelve tribes of Israel... And God wanted to be known as a God whose desire it is to dwell in the midst of His people. And here we see the exalted Christ in the midst of those seven candlesticks. Now we have this amazing description of His glory, of His power, of His majesty. It was an an overwhelming revelation of the exalted Christ, even though it's very clear from the language that he appears here to John as the Emmanuel, God with us. But here we see, here we see the exalted Emmanuel. Here we see how the glory of His divine person shines through that humanity of His. It radiates in a most extraordinary and most dramatic way. And again, the symbolism would have been so meaningful to John. Because as he he beheld the glorified Christ... He saw the garments that reminded him of priesthood and garments that reminded him of royalty. And then he heard his voice. So what we see here, congregation, that Christ here appears to John on the Lord's Day as the king of his church, in royal splendor, in royal majesty, as the priest of his church, the high priest of his church, and as the prophet of his church. And so he appears here to John as the great office bearer of his church, the Lord Jesus Christ, who ministers to his church until this day as our king, as our interceding high priest, and as our prophet. Then we read in verse 16 that he had in his right hand seven stars. Again, that's beautiful. I need to go through this to set the stage for our text for today. Especially in light of the fact that we are hope to witness the installation of office bearers today. Because who are those seven stars? Well, Christ tells us in verse 20, they are the angels of the seven churches. The angels here are the ministers, the pastors of those seven churches in Asia Minor. Because the word angel, the word angelos in Greek, simply means messengers. So they were God's messengers called by God to serve the churches of Asia Minor. But what's so encouraging also for us today, also so encouraging for our office bearers today, that the exalted Christ, who is in the midst of His people, surrounded by those seven candlesticks, that He holds those seven stars in His right hand. Now, you know that the right hand in the Bible is very significant. It's symbolic of favor, So when you would be seated on the king's right hand, that meant that the king wanted everyone to know that you were the object of his favor. And so he holds those seven stars, he holds those seven angels, he holds them in his right hand. But boys and girls, you know that while Jesus was on earth, you know that something happened to that right hand. What happened to that right hand and to his left hand, as a matter of fact? You know that those hands were pierced with nails when he was nailed to the accursed cross. And those scars of that crucifixion, those scars will be in his hands forever. Throughout all eternity, God's redeemed people will see those marks as the visible reminders of what he has accomplished. And so he holds those seven stars. He holds them in his right hand. He holds them in his pierced hand. What an encouragement that is, congregation. Because as we will know, as you undoubtedly know, those seven churches, they all had issues To put it simply, those seven churches in Asia Minor, they were flawed churches who were being served by flawed office bearers. That's the story of the church of Jesus Christ. We as office bearers, we are flawed men. We are sinful men with shortcomings and frailties. And we serve flawed churches. And how can it be? How can it be that Christ can use flawed men to serve flawed churches? Because He holds them in His right hand. He holds them in that pierced hand. It's because of what He accomplished on the cross. It's on the basis of His perfect and finished work that Christ can use flawed men to serve flawed churches. And he holds them in his right hand. Oh, what an encouragement that is. Because dear congregation, dear brothers, that's a right hand that will never, never let go. We confess it every Lord's Day that he will not forsake the work of his hands. He will not forsake the work of his pierced hands. And then we read that out of his mouth went his sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. An overwhelming experience. And then we come to our text that we will look at briefly this morning. An exceedingly rich text. Verse 17 and 18. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand, that right hand again. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, fear not. I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. And so here we have the exalted Christ comforting His fearful John, his fearful apostle, his fearful disciple, and by extension, comforting his fearful people, we who are so often subject to fear. And he says, fear not. And he gives three reasons to John, three reasons why he should not fear. First of all, he says, I am the first and the last. And so he focuses on his divinity, on his divine glory, his divine identity, I am the first and the last. Secondly, he says, I am he that liveth, I am the living one, I am alive forevermore. So here he focuses on what he is as mediator, what he has accomplished as mediator. And thirdly, he says, I have the keys of hell and of death. And There he focuses on his kingship, on his royal power. Three reasons why he encourages John not to fear. Because of who he is in his divine person, the first and the last. Because who he is as mediator, having been dead and is now alive. And because who he is as the almighty king of his church who has the keys of hell and of death. So, boys and girls, you might ask me the question, say, hey, Pastor, but did John not know the Lord Jesus Christ? Was he not the one who was so very close to him? Is he not the one who leaned on his bosom? And all of that is true. But congregation... Never had John ever seen Him this way. Of course, he and Peter and James, they had received a glimpse of His glory when they were on the Mount of Transfiguration. But even that did not compare what he now witnessed. The overwhelming display of the Shekinah glory of God emanating from the exalted Christ... An overwhelming experience. And when he saw that, he fell at his feet as dead. Because, congregation, John, the beloved apostle, was still a sinful man, he was still in a sinful state. What John saw here ultimately all of the redeemed will see and behold but then with new bodies that are suited for the amazing display of the glory of Emmanuel because we have to remember that the Christ who appears here to John is God manifest in the flesh in his humiliation His divine glory was completely hidden, hidden behind the veil of his humanity. But now here on Patmos, that is gone, and now that glory, the glory of his divine person, now shines brilliantly and reveals itself in a most extraordinary way. And if ever, ever John felt the reality of the fact that he was a sinner, if he ever felt his unholiness, it was at such a moment as this. And so what he experienced was experienced by many others throughout Scripture. Moses experienced that at the burning bush. Job, at the end of his book, he says, I've heard of thee with the hearing of my ear, but now mine eye his thee. And therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. This is what Isaiah witnessed in the temple in Isaiah 6. And when he beheld the glory of the Messiah revealed even then, he said, "Woe was unto to me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. Ezekiel saw something of that, of that Shekinah glory. Daniel saw it. As a matter of fact, parents... A nice thing for you to do is go with your children through Daniel 7 and Daniel 10. And you will find and and look in both of those chapters for specific references that connect all of that to what's happening here in Revelation 1. The shepherds experienced this same fear that John felt when suddenly the the, the heavens were full of the glory of God, and they were fearful. And how about the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, who was raging with enmity, and then he meets the exalted Christ, that brilliant light that shines from heaven, and this proud, arrogant Pharisee falls to the ground and says, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And we see something very similar here. And how beautiful that is. But suddenly, John feels the hand of his master touch him upon him. A hand that he knew so well. And then he hears a voice, a voice with which he was so acquainted When he heard, fear not. Oh, then he realized that this was the same Jesus that he had followed. The same Jesus that had become so precious to his soul. The same Jesus that he loved with every fiber of his being. The same Jesus that he served. That same Jesus with whom he walked. Who now appeared to him in unspeakable glory that same Jesus put his right hand upon him and said to him, fear not. What an unforgettable moment for the Apostle John. And yet, congregation, it is that same Jesus, it is that same Christ who does the same thing today. And he does that today when four men will be installed as office bearers. And His message to them today is to fear not. Because congregation, when we enter into an office called by God, and if we reflect on whom we are called to serve, when we consider who He is and who we remain in ourselves, then we fear and tremble. Because congregation, the grace of God will teach us how flawed we are in ourselves. The grace of God will teach us how often we come short. The grace of God will teach us to see ourselves the way God sees us. A congregation, when we enter upon office bearing, brothers, when you enter upon office bearing, You should do so with the awareness of who it is that is calling you, who it is that you will be serving, and who you are, and remain in yourself. And then it is a wonder that God is pleased to use men like we are, that He calls men like us. To his service, that he calls us in spite of our flaws, in spite of our frailty, in spite of all that testifies against us, that nevertheless, sovereignly, he is pleased to call even us to serve him. And so today, though not physically as happened on the Isle of Patmos, but today, this exalted Christ, the king of the church, the king, the priest, the priest after the order of Melchizedek, that's what we see here, who is the prophet of his church, the great office bearer, is putting his right hand, the hand of his favor, that pierced hand upon you. And He is saying to you, my dear brother, fear not. Fear not. That right hand Fierce hand. That explains why he can use someone like me, why he can use someone like me. And so the only reason we can serve as office bearers, the only reason we can be called by Christ to serve him is because of what he accomplished on the cross. It's for his sake. And of course, he marvelously speaks about this. We have to be very brief here. First of all, he says, I am the first and the last. And Christ clearly identifies himself as God. Three times he says, I am. And of course, earlier in verse 8, we saw it already. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending. Verse 11, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. Alpha and Omega, the first and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. And so Christ is saying, I am the origin of all things, and I am the ultimate goal and purpose of all things. I am the first and I am the last. But how beautifully that also describes His work in the lives of His servants, in the lives of his people every child of god knows there is but one reason why we are what we are is because he was the first he was the first in our life we never sought him he sought us we love him because he first loved us the initiative was his but how comforting it is for John, and for office bearers, but also for God's children to know that this Savior, not only is He the first, but He is the last. In other words, that encompasses everything. And what that means is that this Christ is absolutely committed to His church He's absolutely committed to those seven churches that surround him. He is absolutely committed to those seven stars that he holds in his right hand. And he's saying, fear not, John. Because John, no doubt, had fears as well about what would happen to him. What would happen to the churches in Asia Minor? What would happen as a result of the brutal persecution by Emperor Domitian? When we think of our circumstances today, when we think of the exponential progression of wickedness in our very own country, when we see how persecution is raging around the world, and I fear might be just around the corner for us, who would then not be filled with fear? And our exalted Christ, our prophet, priest, and king, this exalted Christ, the great office bearer, is saying, remember, in spite of the circumstances, in spite of all that's happening, remember who I am. I am the first, and I am the last. I am in complete control of all things. And then he goes on to say, I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. So now he reminds John of his mediatorial work. I am the living one who was the dead one. And so of course that's a very clear reference to his mediatorial work. So beautifully expressed by the Apostle Paul when he says he was delivered for our transgressions delivered for our sins and iniquities and raised again for our justification oh it beautifully summarizes the very heart of the gospel the heart of the gospel that is expressed by the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ as I've told you recently those are the two pillars the two pillars of the gospel on which that whole suspension bridge, remember I used that example of a suspension bridge, which is suspended on two pillars like the George Washington Bridge that connects New Jersey and New York. And so the whole, the whole construct of redemption, the whole work of salvation is suspended on those two pillars, the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's reminding John, I am the living one. Though I was dead, though I was delivered for your transgressions, but I've been raised again for your justification. I have done a complete work. I am the living one. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And the reason Christ uses the word behold... He wants to make absolutely sure that John understands the significance of the fact that he is a living Christ, that he is a living Savior. And that is our comfort. That is our comfort today. As a matter of fact, the only reason, the only way you can explain the fact that the church of Jesus Christ exists today that we have a congregation here today is because we have a living Savior at the right hand of God. A living Savior who is completely and totally engaged in preserving His church in an extremely hostile environment. And So how precious it is to be reminded of that today. Also for our new brothers. Fear not, he is saying. Fear not. Remember, I am your living Savior. I am your living King. I am your living priest. I am your living Priest, prophet. I am alive forevermore. And his life is the warranty of the life of his church. Because his church is his body. As the people of God, we are intimately united to this living Christ who is alive forevermore. That's why Jesus said, because I live, you shall live also. What an encouragement for the church of God. What an encouragement for us as office bearer. That we serve a living Christ who is fully engaged as our prophet, priest, and king to minister to His church and to minister to His people. And so that means, brothers, that means you don't have to go this alone. No, you may, you may engage in your calling, relying on that living, living Christ who will never put to shame those that put their trust in Him. Faithful is he that calleth you, who will also do it. Then you have the word, amen. Now, commentators are divided on who said that. Some commentators say that this was Christ's own word. Now, you could argue for that because in chapter 3, verse 14, he himself says, these things says the amen. He refers to Himself as the Amen. What does Amen mean? Amen means, so be it. It will certainly be. And so Christ not only repeats twice that He is alive, but He puts His stamp on it. They say, John, it is so it is. You can rely on it. You can rest in this blessed reality that I am alive forevermore. Amen, so it shall be. Other commentators say that John responds in worship to this wonderful revelation of the exalted Christ and that he cries out, Amen. So we'll leave that undecided. Um, I'm inclined to believe that Christ said it in light of chapter 3 verse 14. But regardless of who said it, it's a significant word there. That word itself is a rich encouragement. Too often we use that word thoughtlessly. Because actually when we we conclude our prayers with the word amen, it should be a confession of faith. It should be a confession that we believe that God is who He says He is that we believe the witness of His Word, that we believe that all of His promises are yea and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm inclined to believe that Christ here goes out of His way to encourage His trembling, fearful servant. Oh, brothers, such is the Christ we may serve. He is a compassionate high priest. He is a high priest who is concerned about our needs, concerns about our frailty. That's the beauty of all this. He comes at just the right moment, at the right time. And, And what he says here exactly suits the need of the Apostle John. This is exactly what he needed to hear. That's what Christ still does through the ministry of word and sacraments he still draws near to us and dear child of god he knows exactly what your need is he knows your circumstances he knows your struggles he knows all of your perplexities he knows it all and he specializes in ministering to our need always in a way that is tailor-made to our need. This was tailor-made to what John needed to hear. And brothers, you who will be installed, this is tailor-made to what you need to hear. This is our encouragement. And then finally he says, and have the keys of hell and of death. The word hell here is the Greek word Hades. And Hades is a reference to the world that is beyond the grave, the unseen world that is beyond the grave. And the exalted Christ is saying, I know, John, I know that my church is being persecuted. I know that many of my people are dying, are being slain, are being thrown before the lions, are being burned like flaming torches. But remember, I am victorious over death. I am victorious over the grave. I am victorious over Hades, over that unseen world. I have the keys of hell and of death. I am in absolute control of all circumstances at all times. What a beautiful, what an encouraging statement that is. Oh, for the believer and also for John. It was as if Jesus said, if you should have to die for my sake, fear not. Because I have overcome hell and death. I have overcome Hades. I have been victorious. Oh, Christ is saying to his people, for you, death and the grave will be the pathway to everlasting glory. Christ is reaffirming here for the Apostle John. Always as if to say, nothing, John, nothing shall ever be able to separate you from my love. Nothing. Not even death. Not even the grave. Nothing. I have the keys of hell and of death. Oh, those are ugly words. Those two words remind us of the the wretched reality of sin. Had there been no sin, there would have been no death. There would have been no grave. Those are the bitter consequences of sin. But Christ here reaffirms that He has come to deal with all of that. That He has been victorious in His mediatorial work. And yet there's a practical application for our brother's office bearers. Why why do you and I, why do we have to be so diligent in our labors? Because the people here entrusted to our care, they are destined for death and the grave. Our people are destined for death and the grave. That's what makes our work so very, very serious. That's why, that's why we have to labor in such a way that we can say with the Apostle Paul, who was able to say in Acts 20, that he was free from the blood of his hearers, that he had preached God's Word in such a faithful manner, that he was free, that if anyone were to perish... It would not be because he had not been faithful in proclaiming God's Word to them. That's our task. Our task is to be faithful ministers, not just me here in the pulpit, but we have to labor together. We have to co-labor as the servants of Christ. We are ministering to this flock. We are ministering to a congregation, to people, to children, who are destined for death and the grave. And when that moment comes, we do not know. Life is short. Life is uncertain. At any given moment, it can become a reality for any of us. That's why we have to labor diligently for the spiritual well-being of our congregation. Oh, fear not. I am the same yesterday. Today, And forever, that's another way you could read all of this. The same yesterday, today, and forever. Yesterday, John, yesterday I became dead for you and rose again. Today, as your high priest, I am interceding for you and forever. Because I live forevermore, you shall live forevermore. Then there's a day coming of which this same john writes in first john 3 verse 2 we know that when he shall appear as he did here when he shall appear we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is then god's redeemed people will no longer fall dead at his feet but then god's redeemed people will have a body That will be perfectly suited to behold the king in his beauty as John was privileged to do. But how will you do when he appears, congregation? What a fearful moment that will be when the ungodly will see this Christ in all of his splendor, in all of his glory and majesty. Oh, what a fearful thing that will be. Then they will say, mountains fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. Oh, what a fearful thing it will be to meet this Christ as your judge. Then heaven and earth will seek to flee away from his presence and will not be able to. There's only two options. only when we have loved this Christ here, if we belong to those who love His appearance, that's how Paul describes it, who love His appearance. And of course, He now appears to us by means of His Word. But that's what marks the true child of God. Oh, they love His appearance, and they're always looking for Him if you belong to those who by the grace of God can truly say that this Christ has also become precious to my soul, that this Christ has become to me the chiefest among ten thousand, that this Christ is the one after whom my soul hungers and thirsts, this Christ has become precious to my soul, oh, then a glorious future awaits him. For the day is coming, you will see Him as you've never seen Him before, and you will be like Him. But if you have not yet surrendered to Him, oh, I urge you to seek Him today, to seek this Christ who still comes to us in the garments of His Word, who still proffers peace and pardon, who still promises to save any sinner that comes to Him who promises that He will in no wise cast us out, lest we meet Him as our judge. And so, dear people of God, dear brothers, fear not. We serve a Savior who is the first and the last, who is alive forevermore, and who holds the keys of hell and of death. Amen.